Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Mark Torres. Mark is the general counsel to the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 810 in New York City. He's there today because of his newest book, Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back with you, Lee. Thank you. And you're back with us because the first time we spoke, it was about your children's book, introducing children to the ideas behind, um, you know, the importance of union protections and, and employment law. And I may not be selling it well, but I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed this book. It was called Good Guy Jake. We spoke back in 2018. So you wrote this children's book, you've written two novels, and now you've done a deep dive into some important labor history on Long Island. So I have to ask, what brought you to this topic? Well, uh, certainly it's my first foray into nonfiction historical. And, and, and as an avid reader and, and um, pursuer of history, it certainly felt you know, perfectly within my interest. And I first learned of the camps in 2015 when I wrote my first novel, A Stirring in the North Fork. And in fact, I actually incorporated one of the camps into that fictional book for the setting. And then I realized that there's, there's some important history that I wanted to revisit. And when I did, I, I really was um, shocked in many ways. And the more I learned, the greater my obligation grew to tell this history. Now, when you think of migrant camps, I think people in different geographical locations may have different ideas about what that means. But in Long Island, can you give us an idea of what time period you were really looking at and who the people involved were? Yes. Well, the book, the book starts from the first opening of the first four camps in 1943, and it generally covers through the, through the end of the century, 2000 or so. But the peak period by far was in the mid to late 1950s. The first uh, workers, the first migrant workers were from Jamaica and Barbados. They were brought to the U.S. under U.S. government-sponsored contract. They worked on Long Island for, for probably a couple of years or so. And, and slowly there was a shift right after World War II. There was a shift away from those U.S.-sponsored contracts and more local U.S. citizens were used, primarily from, uh, workers from Puerto Rico and primarily black workers from the U.S. southern states. And one thing I didn't appreciate before reading your book was how big the agricultural industry was on Long Island. I think of Long Island as a place where people live, not necessarily where they farm. So could you talk a little bit about the agricultural history of Long Island? Because it's so much bigger than I thought. Yeah, no, certainly. And, and Long Island really historically has always been known for two, as they say, two delicacies, ducks and potatoes. And the Long Island potato at one point was the was the number one out, out, uh, supplier of potatoes in the nation. In 1949, it was the county produced between 14 million and 18 million uh, bushels of potatoes, a staggering amount for really not a large geographical area. And, you know, the, the, for centuries, for, for decades, it, it continued this way until for many reasons to explain for a change in agricultural output that eventually led to that declining growing of potatoes. And potato farming, duck farming, all of this calls for intensive, people-heavy work. And you, you talk a lot about stoop farming. Can you share what it meant to be a farm worker, agricultural worker, in this area? In my line of work, I represent a wide array of typical Teamsters, from truckers, skilled maintenance, and warehouse. I had no idea about the, the how labor-intensive farming is and was and is. 
They call it stoop labor for the bending, the crawling. It's very taxing on the body. You're exposed to the elements. You're you're having exposure to uh, poisons and toxins, and you know all of these all of these things that really make this much more difficult than it lets on. And then at the end of the day, you're you're housed in these these labor camps, which are really shoddy, slum-like conditions. You know there was certainly no relief. And these labor camps, it's pretty clear that during the war period and post-war period. A lot of this was taking advantage of pre-existing housing or maybe surplus army housing or, or, or tents. But how did the farm owners look to create housing for these migrant workers? Sure, sure. The term labor camps is, was certainly used interchangeably. Uh, it could have been army barracks, um, small cabins. In one case, it was a, 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 an old historic mansion that was used as a quarters for workers. It really, really depended on the location, the time, the, the circumstance, but really they were housed in many different styles of, of housing. And, and this went on repeatedly. And I can tell you that in 1943, the first four camps by 1958, there were 134 labor camps in the county, and those were registered. Likely, there were probably others unregistered, but by far, that was the peak period, a staggering amount of camps in an area, again, that's not necessarily that large geographical in size. Something that really adds to the book and to my understanding of the issue and my enjoyment of, of the book is all of the historical photos you were able to source and include, and it really helps you fathom in your mind, oh, okay, this is what you're talking about. Um, I remember reading, you know, one sentence about how a hundred men were housed in a three-story building. And I thought to myself, huh, and then I turn the page and I look at it and I look at this three-story building and I'm like, 100 men in this three-story building? This is not a large three-story building. How important was it for you to find and include these kinds of photos that can really show the reader what you're talking about? Oh, it was absolutely critical. I I realized, and I still realize now, there are not many structures left today from this era. There's maybe one, maybe a very few, one or two old old decrepit buildings that are left, uh, an old barn on Shelter Island, and and I realized that for the reader, you know, they would never really know that any of this existed. So it was important for me to kind of add visual imagery to to uh, raise in a conscious mind that the labor camps that dominated the region for so long. Well, we've talked a little bit about the quarters and the housing, but can you describe what it would have been like to stay in one of these facilities? What what were the living conditions? Many of the workers who were certainly were single, the single men, slept in what was called bullpen style sleeping quarters. Really, it was just a large room with many bunk beds stacked up next to each other. And this naturally led to no privacy. It also led to acts of crime, violence, bullying, even sexual abuse. A lot of that was 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 common for the time because there was no proper private space for these workers. And if you were a family or a single woman, perhaps? Yeah, the family or single woman would have stayed in the smaller quarters. At, at in, For instance, in the Cutshaw camp, there was the large uh, bullpen quarters as well as small cabin-style units. And they would have they would have stayed in the cabin style units and and again they were no well they lent to a bit more privacy they certainly were just as dangerous and 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 downtrodden as the other facilities. It really seemed to me that your fate as a migrant worker, whether it be your your pay rate or the conditions you live in, could really vary depending on sort of what sociological group you belonged to. I don't know that sociological is the right word there, but. You know, the Jamaicans who first came over, these are skilled agricultural workers. You know, just for any listeners who are not familiar 
with the agricultural industry. When you say that farm labor is unskilled, it's woefully, woefully off the mark because people harvesting food, it is a very difficult job to actually harvest quickly and well and without spoiling the the product. So when these Jamaican workers came over, the New York farmers were getting extremely skilled workers and they were paying them, I think it was something like 40 cents a day where there was another sentence you said earlier where a group of German POWs a little earlier or around the same time was being paid 55 cents a day. And, And surely were not as productive as these skilled Jamaican workers. Could you just get into who were some of the groups that were more successful than others or were really taken advantage of more than others? What what did it look like? Well, certainly there was this diff- an interesting dynamic. When the first workers came over, the Jamaican workers, they were under contract and there was a lot of uh, U.S. government oversight. So these camps, by and large, were far better than the other camps that, that would, would come uh, in years later. Uh, and these workers were lauded for their tireless work ethic. Seven days a week, they were they they and they had this extensive experience of working on their home islands and plantations. But again, th- those were short-lived programs. Generally, four to five years. Once the war ended and the war t- the U.S. Uh, suspended the wartime uh, program, the, the, then it was basically on the farmers and growers to think of: we still have this need for heavy need for labor. Where do we find sources? Some workers were brought in under contract from Puerto Rico. And the book does detail that, which is, in many ways, those workers were were similarly re- almost represented by a union. The contract they had and the benefits they enjoyed, no one else received. But of course, this is cost prohibitive. So the growers eventually moved from that model and eventually went to what's called the crew leader system. A crew leader was someone who would really contract with the growers, rent out the labor camp, and then recruit the workers himself or themselves. And, uh, and then they would be responsible for all aspects of the workers from living, eating, and of course, the pay. And and this naturally led to a lot of um, abuse and exploitation because of that system. And at the same time, the growers reaped the rewards of having a pool of labor nearby, but had no other obligation or no really no obligation to their well-being. So they simply outsourced all of that responsibility to these crew leaders. The labor camps weren't going up on the surface of Mars. You know, these were occurring in the middle of pre-existing towns and, and localities. There were existing communities here. If you lived in one of these communities, how much would you know about the labor camps? How much would you interact with the workers? And, you know, what was the response of the local communities to these labor camps going up? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Lee. You know, the, the interesting thing I get, uh, that I've, the feedback that I've gotten from the book and all the lectures I've already provided, is that even lifelong Long Islanders who lived at the time in these areas never knew of these camps. The camps are always always in secluded uh, locations miles away from the nearest town. So they're basically cut off from society. The growers and the camp operators went to great lengths, even including violence and threats of violence, to keep outsiders from visiting the camps and reporting on the conditions. And that was a, that was a chronic problem uh, nationwide, where certainly in California and other places, there were many acts of violence where you know, people were threatened or, or shot or killed even when those tried to trespass uh, on, onto the land. And it took until 1971 when a federal federal judge in Michigan ruled that these these migrant workers, when they when they go onto these lands and properties, they do not forego their bundle of rights. They are still entitled to them, and that uh, you know those who want to enter for non commercial reasons, whether it's labor unions or reporters or just social groups, they were then allowed finally to enter these camps and report on these conditions and offer help. 
and vice versa. It was very difficult for these workers to leave the camps and go into local stores, you say. Um, yes, and you know, then there's been a centering debate on that. My, in my research, there really was limited or no examples that suggest that the workers were were forbidden to leave or prevented from leaving. However, there's more than one way to enslave a person. In this case, if a crew leader had found that, for instance, a worker walked two miles to town to, say, buy a bottle of a wine or to buy something, and then he or she would come back to the camp, if the crew leader had discovered that, they would just penalize them or be retaliatory by not giving them work for the next two or three days. And that would that would be a problem because then they would not incur uh, income while still incurring the daily debt of living at the camps. And I think this is a perfect time to talk about the subtitle of the book, Dust for Blood. What does Dust for Blood mean? Yeah, that that, that quote, that, that comes from a one of the red documentaries uh, that I covered in the books called What Harvest for the Reapers, 1968 production. A fascinating uh, look into the Kutchog labor camp, which was by far the largest and most notorious camp on Long Island, probably New York. And the worker there explained how, you know, for all the work, you know, paydays was on Saturday. So they work all week and they would expect to have a certain amount in their paycheck or in the envelope with money. And when they opened it up, it was always far less. There were always deductions for rent, for for living space, for for wine, for food, you know, all these things. And in most cases, they were hidden fees deducted from these workers and they will always receive less than they, than they earned for their hard work, hence the title Dust for Blood. And I'll give you another example. One woman in, in 1968 went to Riverhead, which is the, the largest municipal city in the area, to complain that Social Security taxes were being taken out of her check when she did not even have a Social Security card or Social Security number. So it gives you an indication of the type of fraud that was going on. Truly. Do you have a quote from that documentary you'd like to read for us? Well, there are many. Uh, I, I can re- I can refer to one quote, which I which you know Suffolk County News reporter Ruth Shire in 1956, and I think this really captures the the essence of the, of the era. Again, we're, we're right around the period of the peak camps, and and Miss Shire had stated, "When you crowd people in unsuitable quarters with inadequate facilities, tragedy is bound to strike," and it did. Even the most hostile communities can no longer feel complacent when they contemplate the charred bodies of children who have been trapped in dwellings away from good water pressure. And I'll add it to that, Lee, that the book goes more than just identifying the camps and the hard conditions than they were. I really wanted to go into the, the, the personal, the psyche of those who inhabited these camps as well as the communities. And, and there were terrible acts of, of certainly uh, abuse, exploitation, manipulation, and then naturally crime and violence, and ultimately the death. There were many examples of people who had died in these terrible conditions. I, I think of one, uh, Dilcia Trent, 22-year-old mother, three young children, all under the age of three. She was living in a 12, 12-foot by 12-foot shack in Riverhead, Long Island. Uh, her husband, who's a migrant worker, is out in the fields, and it was a cold January day. She lights the wick to light up the the, the space heater or the uh, kerosene heater in the, in the room. The match falls onto the rug, which is saturated with kerosene. It goes up in flames. She tries to, desperately tries to um, remove the rug. She, she knocks over the heater. When she picks that up, she gets kerosene on her clothing. She, she goes up in flames. In agony, she has to leave her children to run out of the room to try to roll on the, on the floor to douse herself in the mud. Within seconds, the place went up, the children perished, and she died one week later. And, you know, those kind of stories stick with me profoundly because, again, these are people stuck in this migrant stream uh, during this migratory labor system. And we keep using the word migrant, but you do say in the book some of this was year-round work. I think that when people hear migrant worker, they probably think of seasonal labor. I know I grew up in central Illinois 
and the agricultural work there was seasonal. So if, for example, you were coming up from Latin America or South America to work, there may only be work for a few weeks, and then you would be moving on to a different area. But what was the system like in Long Island? It seems like these camps were not just two-week affairs. Yeah, no, certainly. But the potato, the potato harvest was generally from August through November. However, there were strawberries, uh, lima beans, string beans, uh, many other crops that that required early picking. So in many cases, generally, you could say from from April through the end of the year, which is you know a, a good eight months or nine months. And then in that case, many of the workers just travel with the crew leader up on the next stop in the migrant stream, which on the East Coast would have been upstate New York for apples, and then back to Florida, and then make the whole circuit back once again. However, Riverhead, as I mentioned earlier, factors heavily into the story because, again, it's the largest municipal city that far east. And many of the workers... When they, when they stayed in the area, when they realized that they don't want to travel anymore and look for work, they stayed in Riverhead. The problem with Riverhead is that it had no housing code. So anyone could put up any structure uh, and that had disastrous, disastrous effects. We had in 1959, there were uh, eight deaths in 11 days. There was, um, you know, constantly, typically by fire, uh, other sorts of, of, of calamities, but always, almost always typically by fire. There were poverty stricken areas that, that were, that were, that sprung up due to these conditions. And, and really it factors in because that was the hub where many of the workers who decided let's just stay on Long Island would, would stay. You mentioned the really tragic story of that woman and her three children. Children were in these camps and there needed to be something to watch the children, keep the children safe and occupied, but the existence of daycares or schools was really spotty. You brought up the story of one woman who spent some 20 years as a teacher for these children. Could you talk a little bit about her story? Because I found her fascinating. Sure. Hel- Helen Prince was a, a lifelong educator and, and historian of the town of Southhold. Uh, she passed away, I believe, over 101 years old. A wonderful woman, wonderful legacy. And she was the teacher at the Kutchog Labor Camp for o- over a decade, probably 12, close to 12 years. And she um, she was a staunch educator. But again, to call it a school is, like you said, is not optimal learning experience or environment. They were housed in this little room right outside that was a leaky pipe with raw sewage, terrible smells, insect problems. And every time that she she would request funds to improve upon the school. She was told, but Helen, you don't have to teach them anything. You just have to keep order. And it was that kind of indifference that was marked. Again, this is one of the only camps that had a school. I can tell you in 1950 in, in Bridgehampton, which is on the South Fork, and you know those not familiar will always talk about the Hamptons, the rich, the rich and famous, you know, vacation there quite often. But they too had potato farms and labor camps. And in Bridgehampton, there was a family of four living in a chicken coop. And the parent, both parents were out and there were two infant children they, who stayed home, you know, at, stayed there. A fire broke out and both of them perished. Right after that, the, the Bridgehampton Child Care Center was formed, and which still exists today, doing wonderful things for the community. But I think even that had its limits where people realized this, this can't continue in this manner. And you're right, this, you, you're accurate to describe it as spotty because most of the camps did not have schools. Many of the workers later on just came alone or with family, or, or if they resided in these deplorable conditions, would, you know, again, sometimes meet sad endings. You spoke to many, many family members of people who lived like this. Were you able to interview anyone who'd spent a childhood in one of these camps and remembered it? 
Ironically enough, afterwards, what I was uh, in, my, in my research, and, and again, I'll just tell you a bit about my research because they, this is the first time this book, this has ever been discussed or covered in a book. And I'm quite proud of that because it was such a widespread, deep history that was suppressed and almost gone forever. I, I reviewed over 300 newspaper articles, did many interviews, reviewed documentaries. I did speak to and connect with a lot of family members of those who whose loved ones were part of this system in one way or another, whether they were an advocate trying to help uh, workers or you know whether they were they knew someone who stayed at the camps afterwards uh, subsequent to the book's release and several of my lectures i was contacted by some people one of them an individual who grew up in riverhead uh, lifelong and still is there so you know by by quotes you can't say he's not a migrant he was from there but he too fell on hard times and spent time at the cut short camps and he explained the, the terrible conditions there as well so my goal was and remains to be not only to capture and preserve this history to share it but also ignite and and, and open up forums for further discussion for people who can re- recollect or or recall or or certainly validate the, the research that was there. And that's what I've been receiving, and, and I'm happy to say that. And along those lines, certainly I've heard about the labor movements in the California agricultural system and the strides that they made. And they really seem to have achieved a lot more when it comes to labor rights and protections for workers in California Whereas in Long Island, really poor conditions persisted long after that. Why do you think the workers in California were able to have more of an impact on these poor treatments and poor conditions where the Long Island workers just were not? Sure. And certainly a bittersweet dynamic, right? We have Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. In fact, I, I interviewed Dolores for the book and, and she's still doing well and, and is excited about this project as well. There was a growing swell. There was a growing swell. The treatment, the, there was a, a mass public, a lot of the public bought into and wanted to uh, assist in this pro, in the bettering of these conditions. I know in 1960, Harvest of Shame, Edward R. Murrow's renowned documentary, which is covered in the book as well. You know, he, he covers all of these areas from Florida all the way through. And he mentions the, the West Coast stream as well. Uh, I, I think that there was public support for it. There was uh, people out there willing to lend a voice and force a change. And I believe it was 1971 when they, California first enacted a labor, labor laws for migrant farm workers. On Long Island, it's sadly the opposite. There was, whether it was outright indifference or just, you know, it, it, simple ignorance, people weren't aware of the conditions, whether, it, you know, they've done, they did such a good job in, in shrouding this, this system and secrecy and intimidation and force. You know, the only reason this this era came to an end, sadly, was not because of any humanitarian push. It was because of a change in agriculture. It was the machinery. Increased uses of machinery led to uh, less need for manpower and less need for labor camps. And then that that showed through the declination of potato growing throughout the years, you know, from thousands and thousands of acres of crops down to, you know, very minimal amount. So, you know, that really was what led to it. And it wasn't until 2019 that New York finally passed a law for a labor law for farm workers to have some rights. And even that's under scrutiny and being challenged by the very powerful agricultural industry. Yeah, that's fascinating. So what do you hope people take from the book? Are there any actions that you're you're urging people to to take? Are there advocacy groups to join to promote agricultural workers' welfare. Now, what do you see happening in the New York area? And also, are there similar conditions in different areas of the country that persist? 
Well, you know, things change, but they kind of always stay the same, right? You know, the gone of these era of the, uh, these camps that I covered in the book, but now, you know, farm workers are still still have no federal label or protection. They're still dealing with certainly in COVID and, and, and pay unfair pay and discrimination. It's just a sad legacy where, where, you know, industry is more paramount and important than the workers' rights. And that's still a sad legacy that we face today. I can read a quote, you know, when I, you know, I always lend to the reader to, to take what they will from this history. I, I approached it as an investigative journalist. Here's the history. What do you think? But of course, you know, any any author would have to have it his own opinion, and 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 I could I could summarize the saying, in retrospect, the migratory labor system practiced in Suffolk County is representative of an industry that became more important than human life, where profit was paramount and exploitation all too common. That this system would thrive for as long as it did, in one of the most affluent counties in the country, undoubtedly leaves a shameful and lasting legacy. And 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 truly, you know, I stand by those words. I, I believe in that. But again. What happened then is still happening now, albeit in different ways. And when industry is allowed to dominate and have more power than people and people's lives, and the, you know these are the catastrophes we see. And all the more reason why labor unions are more important and workers' rights groups are important. And, and to your question earlier about advocacy, uh, certainly on a national level, farm worker justice is a great program. If anyone's interested in volunteering or you know offering donations, they're a great program on a national level. Locally, there's the Eastern Farm Workers Association and other small groups that are you know handling locally on the certainly in the Long Island effort. Uh, because again, you know. A lot of it has shifted. You know, you go to Home Depot, you see a lot of the workers who were who were there looking for work. They have their tools ready to jump in a car and and go to work. Long Island now has many many vineyards, uh, although that I would say is slightly different because there is more artisanal work. And I know that that a lot of the work a lot of the workers could command somewhat better wages because of the intense. You know, there's a multi million dollar industry, so they you know the the growers the vineyards are certainly more selective in who they who they pick. But ultimately, it's the same. And these are the people who feed our our nation, and they're treated the worst. And while you're the first one to kind of bring together this in a book, you were able to speak to and draw from the work of journalists at the time. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, meeting with them, speaking with them, relying on their work, and what was their response to you trying to shine a light on this time period in this place? Sure, sure. Well, well, contemporary Steve Wick, who's a local reporter in Suffolk County, uh, was, you know, he, he was the one I was directed to repeatedly. Talk to Steve, talk to Steve, he's the expert. And he was. And I say was because by the time I was able to connect with Steve, I had already amassed so much research that I was, I found myself sharing things with him that he wasn't aware of. He, you know, a lot of it was just so widespread. But Steve was was he was and is a great man, a great reporter. He actually took it upon himself to take, uh, there were two migrant workers who both lived in Georgia and they were stuck, and I'll say stuck on Long Island for probably 30, 40 years. Oh and Steve took it upon himself to drive them home to his two remaining family members in Georgia. You know, imagine that reunion, seeing their long lost loved ones. You know, he really he really was an, was an outspoken critic and, and what I call in the book a better angel who helped fight against this, this oppression and this terrible system. More historical, uh, even Harvey Aronson and Les Payne, both from Newsday. Les Payne sadly passed away several many years ago, but Les Payne was 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 amazing because he spent one week undercover at a camp in Riverhead, and he got a bird's eye view and, and a look and, and, and understanding of the system, as well as Harvey Aronson, who, who recently toured what they call Migrant Alley, all these these uh, the terrible camps throughout the area, and he repeatedly spoke about him and wrote about him in local articles. So certainly, without the the journalism. Uh, aspect, this book would not be accomplished. And I'm, I'm indebted to them for that, for their efforts. 
One of the things I enjoyed was the epilogue. You profile a number of people who, you know, even though you're only covering maybe a page or less about them, each one of these people seems like they could have their own biography written about them. Yes. A fascinating collection of humans. Well, so. one, one I could think of certainly is Arthur Bryant, who perhaps was my greatest ins- inspiration for writing the story. I first learned Arthur Bryant was a was a reverend, a uh, Lutheran reverend uh, in, in Greenport for probably close to 11 years. And he was, uh, initially he was a, uh, he was a representative for the for the growers. You know, he 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 would advocate on their behalf for 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 funds for improvements. But then, after time, realizing the conditions were so bad, he became a staunch advocate for the workers. And for for his effort, he he testified in Congress in 1969. He he spoke out on local TV and television programs, radio programs, repeatedly. And for his efforts, he received death threats. And when I first learned of his efforts and found out I was trying to track him down, sadly, I found out he passed away at a young age. But I was able to connect with his four daughters who I'm proud and happy to say that we're friends today. They were thrilled that I wrote this book. They were really helpful in getting some information to me to properly capture that. But Arthur Bryant, Helen Prince, uh, Steve Wick, all these people who really went to great lengths to to speak out against a system that was just you know brutal and 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 uh, longstanding really de- deserve a lot of credit and, and and I'm certainly inspired by them. And one of the kind of catch-22s it seemed like these advocates faced was they would advocate for funds for, for example, these housing units to be upgraded and improved and made safer. And then they may get some approval, but then it was discovered that this is not a nonprofit. These are businesses. And then the money would not be given over. So there just, there seemed to be a lack of available funds to improve anything for the workers unless it was coming directly from the landowners who did not seem to be yeah, yeah. you know overwhelmingly invested in putting their money there no they're certainly uh, you know quantity over quality was was important to them and, and everything was about profit and and I shouldn't say all there were very few farmers who, and some today I, I spoke to um, Tom Wickham the Wickham family has been farming on Kutchuk for over 300 years an amazing gentleman he took me on his sprawling farm and he explained that they 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 preached quality over quantity. They and because of that, they had need or reason to use less workers. And when they use less workers, they pretty much use the same workers year after year. And they also built their own housing on their own property for them. And there was a nice relationship there between um, the grower and the workers. However, sadly, that was in the minority compared to the, the largely profit-driven uh, growers that that really rule the day. Well, Mark, you've certainly had a very varied career as an author. Do you think you'll go back to fiction after this? Or have you been inspired to do more nonfiction work? What do you think's next for you? Yeah, I, I believe I, I believe my love tends to be nonfiction. Um, you know, this this book specific, I mean, it covers labor, history, and the law, three of my passions and my, my professional and personal uh, careers. You know, even in my fictional work, I always strive to teach. A stirring in the North Fork mentions Cutshaw Labor Camp. Uh, Adeline, the, the follow-up to that fictional um, murder mystery book, covered the, the mental health hospitals and, and treatment in New York State. So I realized that th- this was perhaps my true calling. That it that it was a matter of of researching and 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 putting out work that that helps to educate and illuminate uh, situations that have been un, un, untold. And if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about Mark's career and how he came to work as an attorney, you can go back to our episode in February of 2018. And I would really encourage people to do that because you've you've had a very 
fascinating career. Thank you, Leah. Appreciate that. If people are interested in picking up Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood, where can they go? Well, it's available on Amazon as well as the publisher's uh, website, History Press. And, and, they're, and they're a good publisher that, that works on a lot of regional and lo- local histories in many areas. I was really thrilled to partner with them for this project. Well, thank you to Mark Torres for joining us. And thank you to my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.